This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Hello, and welcome back to Heart Wisdom, Jack Kornfield's podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. I'm Ganesh Braymiller, welcoming you to episode 209, Life as a Forest Monk. And this truly may be my favorite episode of Heart Wisdom that I have ever had the honor of listening to. It is another vintage episode, as Jack has allowed us to go a bit deeper into the archives. It takes place in 1981 at Insight Meditation Society, And it's all about Jack's life as a forest monk with his teacher Ajahn Chah in Thailand at a forest monastery. These stories that Jack shares are hilarious. They're illuminating and honestly riveting. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode and soak up this entertaining dharma. And I do have to say I'm proud that Jack is back with some amazing online events for you this autumn. On October 20th through 22nd, Jack is taking part in his great friend, Dr. Diana Hill's Wise Effort Together, which is a free online gathering. Jack will be doing a session with Trudy on October 20th entitled Loving Effort, Moving with Joy and Benevolence Through the World. Then on October 16th, Jack is back for his Monday Night Dharma Talk at Spirit Rock. This again is an online gathering. It is pay what you can. And this truly is the uh, guru beat on the mala for the month if you are a student of Jack. He, he generally touches on what is going on in the world. And as we all know with everything going on in the news today, this is a crucial time for checking in with how our hearts are. And then on November 4th, Jack is taking part in Loving Presence, Compassion, and a Joyful Heart. This is with Trudy Goodman, and it is an online day-long retreat and a benefit for Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Jack and Trudy are one of my favorite Dharma duos, so I hope you will join them there. And I would be remiss not to share about Cloud Sangha. This is Jack and Tara Brock's brainchild for creating digital spiritual community. There are many focused groups where you can share with people that are at the same stage of the path and life as you. Also, please don't forget that Jack has a wide variety, a growing variety of online courses at jackhornfield.com. This is a very sweet way to become a student of Jack and learn all about various topics such as Buddha nature, mindfulness meditation, Buddhist psychology, as well as the brand new stories course, which we have just put out, which is Jack's hand-selected favorite stories that he has shared throughout his teaching career. And you can find this along with all the events that I spoke about previously at jackcornfield.com. So I'd like to thank you for being a student of Jack's, for listening in each and every week and taking in this kind of wisdom and love that is going to help change the world to be a much better, safer, and more compassionate place. I wish you well. I hope you enjoy this talk as much as I did. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you help others through the authenticity of your own being. And may your heart be smiling. Namaste, y'all. Ram Ram. For teaching meditation and for learning Dharma myself, 
I had the privilege of practicing both in an intensive meditation center similar to this, one in Thailand, one in Burma, and also of living for a long time in a forest monastery in the far northeast of Thailand, near the border of Laos and Cambodia. And I returned there this winter for several months and ordained again as a monk, took the orange robes, lived in a cottage in the forest with a teacher, Ajahn Chah, and the monks around him. And I'd like to give you some sense of the life there and the way that he taught. The things that I learned were tremendously valuable and helpful in Dharma practice and perhaps to convey some of that spirit so that it will be of use to you. It's interesting because just as it gets to be this color, this time of day with the sun setting here, it's 12 hours difference precisely, and the sun is just rising there. The sky is getting orange and red, and the monks are getting on their robes, getting their bowl together, getting ready to go out and walk through the rice paddies to various nearby villages for alms food in the morning to allow the villagers to make offerings and then they come back and eat and go with go on with their day of meditation and work and somehow what we do here is connected with them we're not isolated even though it feels separate in some ways there are groups of people just like us in many countries in many places around the world who are undertaking this journey or this practice of awakening in the same spirit as us. Ajahn Chah's teaching had four levels to it. And each of them was done with a great deal of humor and a lot of love and compassion, although sometimes one didn't feel it so directly. The way that Ajahn Chah taught involved first a level of surrender, Second, opening up so one could see clearly what was happening. The third were different tools or ways of working with difficulties and defilements in the mind. And the last was a final perspective or balance that came from the practice. Surrender. You come to a forest monastery like his, it's couple of hundred or several hundred acres of thick forest, thicker than here, more like jungle with lots of vines and snakes and things. And cottages scattered throughout it from one cottage to another, there would be a small path. And generally, you couldn't see from one cottage to another in little isolated clearings. In the center, a large dining hall and meditation hall. And his monastery is renowned in Thailand as being a place of very strict practice. And the strict practice isn't just the formal meditation we do here, but a strictness of discipline in which the monks take great care with everything they do to be mindful. They take great care with the rules of the order. There are 227 rules that monks follow. And what he has set up there is an environment of, it's really of a challenge. It's a place uh, in which impeccability, in which tremendous presence and awareness is expected of people. And it inspires you to go in. Everything is disciplined and neat and orderly, not disciplined with external force, but rather you see that things are done with care. And he tells people when they arrive that if they're coming just to relax and have a good time, they've come to the wrong place, that it'll be difficult. And it's not just for fun, but rather it's to learn something very important, to learn how to be free. And so sometimes difficulties arise in that process. That's all right. Remember when I first began to sit in meditation, we sat in a hall about four times the size of this. And at the front was the platform that the monks sit on. It's made of stone. And in those Asian countries, you don't sit on a Zafu and Zabutan. These are Japanese. You have one small kerchief, like a handkerchief, that you put down on the stone and then you sit. 
and it hurt, let me tell you. My knees, I didn't know how to sit. I sat there and my one knee would be up here and the other knee would be up there and I'd put one down and the other would come up further. And it really hurt a lot. And we would sit, we'd do a lot of hours of sitting on this flat stone floor. And I figured out a system when I came in. If I got to the meditations early, the evening and morning ones, especially the big group ones, then there were two or three supporting pillars in the front of the hall. And I could go and get my seat near one, and then everyone would close their eyes and meditate, and then I could lean (laughs) against the pillar, and it wouldn't be so bad. Well, I did that for about a week because it was painful and difficult and hurt. And then one night in his Dharma talk, not, not many days after I'd been there, Ajahn Chah looked at me directly in the eye, although he was speaking to the group, and he said, learning to practice Dharma was learning how to be independent, how to not have to lean on things. <laughs> so I had to move my seat. And it was that, that spirit that what you were doing there, you were expected to work hard and have a real impeccable spirit and just to do it. And I remember the first full moon day at Ajahn Chah's in which um, full moon and new moon, we'd shave our heads. And I'd never used a straight razor before. I was always using a Norelco electric. <laughs> And I ordained and they gave me this straight razor fine. So I went to the monk's cottage next to me and I said, Oh, venerable sir, bowing, would you please help me shave my head? And he said, In this monastery, we shave our own heads. So, all right, I went back and I got my razor in this little tiny mirror that you were allowed as a monk. And I went to the well, drew a bucket of water and sat down, soaped up my head and took out my mirror and razor and began. I went a little ways and then there was this noise and then a little trickle of blood ran down. Oh, put the razor down, sit, rising, falling, meditate, get centered again, pick up the razor mindfully. I'm a new monk, remember, really trying to do it right. A little further, oops, another trickle of blood down the other side, put it down took me two hours of scraping. And meanwhile, in the middle, all the mosquitoes in the jungle around must have smelled what was going on because they all came out. So I'd be swatting them away and scraping. And when, when it was done, I just rinsed my head. And it was so what was a little pink, but it, it stung all the places that I'd cut myself. It was satisfied. And I kind of proudly went and put my robe on and I went under Ajahn Chah's cottage uh, where the monks would assemble in the afternoon to be with him. And he looked out. I was the only Western monk there at the time. He said, oh, Western monk shaved his own head, I see. <laughs> and then he pointed to the youngest novice, some like nine, eight-year-old kid, and he handed him this straight razor, and he says, go finish it off, because there were still little tufts of hair sticking <laughs> out places. And the spirit was that you just did it and you worked with whatever came up as your practice um, of be, living the life of a monk meant taking what came to you and working with it, whatever, whether it was difficult or easy. And there were very difficult people to live with at times in the monastery. They weren't all fun. It reminds me of the story from um, George Gurdjieff's community in France where he actually paid and hired this one very obnoxious Russian character from Paris. Everyone else had to pay him a tremendous amount of money to live there. But this one man who no one could stand, he paid in order to stay there. He said it was like the yeast in the bread. If that man were there, then were not there, then no one else would really see their, their reactive mind and learn how to deal with it. And there were, there were similar characters at times in the monasteries. We would sit for hours at times. He used to give what what the Western monks later ended up calling, um, what was the phrase for it? Uh, endurance sessions or sometimes torture sessions. He, would, he could sit without any trouble for, for many, many hours and he would sit there and give a Dharma talk for five hours. And you'd be sitting on a stone floor 
waiting, my God, when is he going to finish? And he'd go on and on and he'd just kind of look around and see who was squirming and you weren't allowed to leave until he was finished. And I remember one night being in his monastery on full moon, the villagers would come and offer this drink of sweet, very thick, rich coffee. We went off and did this monk ceremony that night and then we were supposed to go back to the main meditation hall and sit up all night and and uh, chant and sit with the villagers and drink our sweet coffee. And since you only ate one meal a day in the morning, that meant a lot. It was really wonderful. And I remember sitting there and he had a visitor, an older monk teacher of his who came and they were having a conversation and, and, it, and it appeared that they just overlooked dismissing the monks. And they sat and talked from eight till around midnight and I was sitting there and wanting my coffee and wanting to get up and wanting to move. And every once in a while, he'd look around just to see how people are doing. And then he'd sit quiet and then they'd start talking again. And I kept thinking, when is he going to get done? When will I get my coffee? When can I? One in the morning, two in the morning, four in the morning. I got angrier and angrier as the night went on until about three, I think. Which point I, I finally figured out that my meditation better happen there because it wasn't going to happen anywhere else that night. And in the morning when he got up to leave, he came over and kind of smiled and said something like, how are you doing? Just to, he'd, he'd seen what I'd gone through in the night. I'm sure he was aware of it. And by then I'd kind of realized that meditation practice was where you were sitting and it wasn't to go to some other place or have the ideal setting or have your coffee or have your quiet little room. That what he was teaching with that kind of surrender was that what, where you are is your practice. He wanted people to take great care with whatever they did. And at first I thought he was kind of like a bossy grandmother. We'd be out sweeping the leaves and he'd come out and say, no, no, sweep this way or making brooms. And he'd come out and show you how to make a bamboo broom that would really work. Later on, I discovered in watching him when he came out that what he was teaching, he didn't care whether it got swept or not because you'd sweep it. And another day later, the forest leaves would cover the pass. That wasn't the point. But he was very... He was very interested in people learning how to do what they did with care. And that was his own spirit. And he'd sit there and he would tie a broom and he would show you how it was done so that it was really done well. Or sweep or, or build something. And he could lay bricks as well as any of the other monks who were, who were, who were helping build the buildings in the monastery. And I remember one morning... And very cold in the cold season. We were in a mountain monastery and we went out for alms round and I was freezing. It must have been, it was a strong wind and probably around 40 degrees, maybe 38. It's cold, just very, very cold. And I had my robes on. You just have three robes in an ascetic monastery. And then I also had a towel and I'd managed somehow to wrap it under my robes and have it come up and cover my ears a little bit, which is a big part of my body. (laughs) And um, so we went out for our every morning. It was like three, four, five miles each way to this village. And we got to the village and I was just chattering and freezing. We went through and the villagers put in their rice and stuff that they could. And we came out of the village and he turned to me and he said, cold? And I said, freezing. And he said, well, this is as cold as it gets in Thailand. And I was so happy. (laughs) And the spirit of it was that he was right there with you. He was willing, you know, if you had to sit a long time, he sat there too. It wasn't like he was off doing something different. He was right there with you and giving you... um, the sense that that was your practice. Whatever your difficulty, work with it, use it. And he was there when it was cold. It was really wonderful. You know that you can do this. You can learn to work with it. He expected surrender from everybody. And it wasn't blind faith surrender, but it was rather the context of whatever came up for you in your experience in that monastery, that was your practice. And he talked about it simply... He said, there are two levels of practice, and this is an important thing for people. He said, one level of practice is where you use Dharma to become comfortable. You 
you're virtuous and you're a little kinder and you sit quiet sometimes at home and you own before you eat or whatever it happens to be and you make a nice sort of harmonious community. And that's the blessings of that level of dharma. The second kind of dharma, he said, is that practice in which you are interested in real freedom, freedom of your mind and heart and spirit. And that level of practice has nothing to do with comfort whatsoever. It's rather taking whatever comes and working with it to learn how to be freer. And he'd ask people about that and say, that's what we're doing here. That If you want to come here, that's our purpose. And he'd trust. He gave a lot of responsibility for people to work with what came up in that light. And he would test people, you know. People would get angry or upset. And he'd go over to them. You could see they were angry. He'd say, are you angry? You know, and when, depending what you answer, you'd say, well, whose fault is it? And it's always only one person's fault that you're angry. You know whose, you know. This time I went to see him, and the first full moon when the monks gather to recite the Padi Mocha rules of the order, I got my robes fixed in the formal fashion for this special ceremony and went into the, they built a new and beautiful hall in the center of the monastery for these ceremonies. And all the monks had gathered and I went, we were all together, and then he came. He comes sort of at the end, right before the ceremonies to start. And he looked at me and he said, you're not supposed to be here. Leave. Go back to your cottage. And usually the people who are asked to leave are people who are considered impure, who aren't good monks, who don't follow the rules, who aren't um, considered to be people who are upholding the standard of conduct of the order. So I... I felt terrible, you know, like he wasn't respecting. I was trying to be a good monk. I knew I was a good monk. And he didn't, didn't believe it. And he kicked me out. And I heard that as I was walking down the steps, he turned to a couple of the, his buddies, the senior monks there, and he said, oh, he's a meditation teacher. He won't mind. You know. <laughs> and for a month and a half, he wouldn't let me go and join those particular ceremonies. And I was upset for a couple hours, and I kind of looked at it, and, you know, it was just another mind bubble, and then it passed away. Um, And then the last day before I was leaving to go to Bangkok, I was hanging out with him under his cottage. He had just taken a bath, and I was helping to dry his feet. And he looked down, and he kind of chuckled, and he said, well, it sort of poked me. How'd you like being treated like a visiting monk? You know, just testing to see if I was still angry. And I said, well, actually, it was quite appropriate since I am a visiting monk. I'm only here for a short while. And he laughed and he said, that's wise of you. That's wise of you to see that. And it's like he was always testing people and always kind of trying to see what you were attached to, requiring a great deal of surrender. So that was the first step. The second step of his teaching, after you come and you surrender to the circumstance and you work with it, was of teaching people to open up and see clearly. And it's essential in our sitting practice, in our whole Dharma life, becoming honest, seeing what is true of our situation, of our mind, of what's happening with us. And he did it first by being honest about himself. You know, I once asked him, how did he become a monk? You know, what what got him into the business? And he said, that when he was little in his village, the children, as children everywhere, used to play house and doctor and, and so forth. And when they were playing their games, um, someone would be the village headman and someone would be the nurse and someone would be the teacher. And he said, I always wanted to be the monk. He said, and so I would get and I would sit myself up on a higher place than all the little, other little kids and I'd get them to bring me candy and food. <laughs> And he said, ever since then, I knew it was a good business. But he also, he talked about his own practice. He said in his own practice, he had lots of problems and doubts and difficulty and suffering and his body hurt and his mind gave him a hard time. He said he remembers sitting in the forest, being a traveling forest monk 
in the dry season and one of the unexpected rains had come and it soaked his robes and his bowl and uh, the few books and everything he had. And he said, I was sitting in the forest just feeling kind of discouraged and the rain was wetting everything coming down and the tears were streaming down my cheeks. I couldn't tell what was rain and what was my tears. He said, but I just sat there anyway. I just sat and I sat and I sat because he said, I had a quality in my practice of daring is the best way to translate the word. No matter what came, I still wanted to do it. I was still willing to work with it. He said, at times I got so sick, he had malaria, which most of those old forest monks had because there wasn't medicine in those days. And he said, at one point, people thought that I was 70 years old and I was like 35. I just wasted away and my skin was all dry. And he said, I just did it. So he was very honest about himself, about his own problems and difficulties. And he was equally honest about people around him. He, he would tease people and laugh at them and with them about all their trips and their resistances. Remember, we went to visit him as a group some years ago, and Ramdas came along. And one of the first things that happened, we sat down, and Ramdas had just come from lying on the beach in this beautiful island in southern Thailand, and he was tanned and doing his yoga and very fit and kind of happy and, um, you know, taking good care of himself. And we all sat down under his cottage and kind of introduced ourselves. And he looked around and he said, oh, who's the old man you brought with you? You know, he started in on Ramdas right away. And sometimes you'd sit under the cottage, monks would be, visit, would be sitting around, and then lay people would come, and he'd introduce his monks, and sometimes in a very formal and, and respectful way, but more often than not, he'd, he'd kind of make fun of him. He'd say, oh, that's the monk that likes to sleep all the time. He's, the, he's my sleep monk. He, whatever, you, whatever you look for him, he's sleeping. And this one's always sick. I don't, he's into getting sick. I don't know why or that. that and he's a big eater. You know, this is our eating monk. You know, and he would just laugh about it. And this one likes to sit a lot. You know, this one is really attached to meditation. You can't get him to move or, or do anything. You know, and this one, would you believe it? He had two wives before he ordained at the same time. Poor guy, you know. You know, and he would just kind of go through the monks around and making fun and being very accurate about what that particular person's trip was. You know, and they'd say, and me, I like to play teacher. That's my trip. And while I was there this time, there was one um, Western Tibetan nun. She'd been a nun for 10 years who came to visit, who is very fat. And she came and she asked if she could stay there with him for a while. And he said, well, she could stay for a little while. And he started making fun of her. Why was she so fat? Did she eat so much or whatever? Just taking the very obvious and looking at it, okay. Um, and she, she answered, whatever. And he said, well, all right, you can stay, but only under one condition. He said, over in the nun's quarters, we have one kuti, one cottage, that's really tiny, he said. And you'll just barely fit into it now. <laughs> so if you eat too much here, he said, you will get in your cottage one morning and you won't get out. And we'll just lock the door <laughs> and you'll have to stay there. You know, and what's sort of doubly ironic, of course, is that Ajahn Chah himself is kind of fat. <laughs> but it was wonderful. He was, there was nothing sacred in whatever your trip happened to be. It was just right, all right, look at that, pay attention to it. Um, he said to me when I was leaving, he said, I know, you know, that you translate for, for what I do in a very good way. He said, but I'm sure you really leave out the biting parts and the difficult parts. He said, I don't speak English, but I can tell the things that I say. He was making fun of me. He said, you're a good translator, but you're a little too soft on them. And you don't really tell them what I'm saying, do you? When he came to Barry last time, I remember him walking around one day in the lawn when all the yogis were out doing their walking meditation. And he said, it kind of looks like a hospital here, doesn't it? <laughs> and after making that comment, he would go up to the yogis and, and Thai, which they didn't understand at all, and he'd look at him and he'd say, I hope you get well soon. He said, I hope you get well. <laughs> you know? 
He said, people in the world are crazy and they need a mental hospital like this to help them get well. And so the, the spirit of his teaching was not at all to be coy, but to be very straightforward and very honest, to really look at what people's difficulties were, you know, so that we could see ourselves freshly. What was the biggest problem with your new disciples, I asked him. He said, opinions, views and ideas about all kinds of things, about themselves, about practice, about the teachings of the Buddha. Many people come, have a high rank in the community. They're wealthy merchants or college graduates, teachers, government officials. Their minds are filled with opinions about things. They're too clever to listen to others. It's like water in a cup. If the cup is filled with dirty, stale water, it's useless. Only when the old water is thrown out can the cup become useful. You must empty your minds of opinions, and then you will learn. Really to look clearly, to be simple. He also talked about seeing one's limits. Ramdas asked him about teaching, and how could you teach when you hadn't finished your own practice yet, when you were still suffering? How could you teach others to be free? And he said, first of all, be very honest. Don't pretend that you're someplace that you're not. Tell people where you are yourself. And then take the measure of things. Assess what's reasonable. If he used the image of rocks, he said, if you know if you're very strong and you practice, you can lift a really big rock. So you could tell someone, listen, if you practice and work up to it, you can lift that big rock, but don't try it yet. And I can't even do it, but I've seen people do it so that you're really willing to express to someone what's possible without fooling them that you've done it. To be very honest with yourself and in your teaching as well, what you tell people. Also in terms of seeing clearly, he stressed frequently where it was important to look. And I remember one time feeling very frustrated at the monastery and wanting to leave because my practice wasn't going well and I wanted a quieter place where I could sit, sit like here, sit 8, 10, 12, 15 hours a day instead of having to go on alms round and chant and have meetings with monks and, and only being able to sit 5 or 6 hours a day sometimes and 8 on a good day. I was frustrated that there was interruptions in my practice. And I said, wanting to leave, I was going to go to a Burmese monastery and I didn't like it there and find a better place and I was angry, basically. And I said, beside which, you don't seem so enlightened to me, you know, because you contradict yourself. One time you say one thing, one time you say another, and, you know, you don't look so mindful, so I see you eating, and how do I know you're mindful, you know? You <laughs> drop stuff on the ground like anybody else, and you don't look perfect, which he thought was very funny. And he said, you know, it's a good thing that I don't look like a Buddha to you. And I said, yeah, how come? Because I was angry. He said, because if I did, you would still be caught in looking for the Buddha outside yourself. And you can't find it. There's nobody that you can imitate. There's nobody, Krishna and Manindra and Mahasi Sayadaw or whoever, whatever guru you want to pick. You cannot imitate them and find enlightenment. Each person is different and they'll have their own patterns and their own ways of being. And if you want to know about freedom, it only comes in your heart when you're not attached to things. He said, Wisdom is for yourself to watch and develop. Take from the teacher what's useful and be aware of your own practice. If I'm resting, he said, while you all have to sit up, does this make you angry? Or if I say that the sky is red or that a, a man is a woman, don't follow me blindly. Look, one of my own teachers ate very fast. He made a lot of noises as he ate. Yet he told us all to eat slowly and mindfully. I used to watch him and get very upset. I suffered, but he didn't. <laughs> I watched the outside. Later I learned some people drive very fast but carefully. Others drive slowly and have many accidents. So don't cling to rules, to outer form. If you watch others at most 10% of the time and watch yourself 90%, this is proper practice. Looking outside yourself is comparing, discriminating. You won't find happiness that way, nor will you find peace 
If you spend your time looking for the perfect man or the perfect teacher, the Buddha taught us to look at the Dharma, the truth, not to look at other people. And he would go around at times when people were having a hard time and he'd say, are you suffering today? Kind of glibly smiling. And they were obviously, depending what they'd answer, he'd say, well, you must be very attached today. And he'd ask that a lot. Are you suffering today? If you're suffering, you're attached. So that's the second way that he worked. The first is through creating a situation of surrender and dignity and impeccability where you really worked with everything that came as your practice. The second was through honesty, through not pretending things weren't the way they are, through looking clearly at one's trips, one's ego, one's fears, one's patterns, really looking at oneself, seeing what's reasonable and keeping the attention inside rather than comparing others outside. The third level of his teaching was teaching how to pe- people how to work with things as they arose. And he had two means. First was overcoming difficulties, and the second was letting go. I'll give you some examples. Overcoming. Fear would arise. I learned the first big Dharma talk I ever gave happened spontaneously in the middle of the night. We would sit up all night on big Buddhist holidays and the hall would be filled with a thousand Lao villagers. And we'd alternate one hour of Dharma talk and an hour of sitting. And at around two in the morning one night, he said, we will now hear a Dharma talk from the Western monk. And I'd never given a Dharma talk before, much less in Lao, to a thousand people. And so what did I, I just got up there and he said, okay, kid, go to it, you know. And I, he knew I was nervous, fine, do it, that's even better. You know, and he had one of his Western monks, Ajahn Sumato, who came to teach here earlier this monk, give a Dharma talk one time for an hour and Sumato was finished and Ajahn Chah said, go on. So he talked for another 45 minutes and then he concluded, Ajahn Chah said, go on, more. And he made him do this over and over again until he had talked for five minutes. I mean, five hours. It was so boring. I mean, he had nothing to say, and he went on and on, and he'd stop and more. And by the end, what he had taught him was to not care whether he was boring or not, not to be afraid of what anybody thought, just to do it. And it was wonderful. If people were afraid in that way, he'd push them into situations. If they were afraid outside, if you were, you know, Thai people are afraid of ghosts or people are afraid of, of tigers or forest animals, great. He would send you into the forest. If he knew you were afraid of tigers, it's right into the forest for you, you know. There's this story from a book about his teacher. At night when his mind is attacked by fear, the forest monk forces himself to do walking meditation in the open. This is what the teacher told him to do. This is the battle between fear and dharma. If fear is defeated, the mind will be overwhelmed by courage and enjoy profound inner peace. If fear is the victor, it will multiply rapidly and prodigiously. The whole body will be enveloped, perspiring heat and chilling cold by the desire to pass urine and defecate. The bhikkhu will be suffocated by fear and will look more like a dying than living man. The threatening roar of a tiger from a nearby place or even far away at the foot of the mountains or on top only serves to increase his already desperate fear. Direction or distance mean nothing to such a monk. His only thought being that the tiger is coming to make a meal of him and that he's coming right at this moment. No matter how wide or vast the area might be, He will be hypnotized by his own fear into believing that the tiger knows of no other place to go but to the very spot which he is walking. The passages for recitation on loving kindness to prevent fear disappear. And ironically, what remains is that passage which serves only to increase it. He will thus recite to himself, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming. (laughs) But it's traditional in the forest monasteries, and Ajahn Chah is that way. He pushes you into what you dislike. If you're afraid to be alone, off to the forest with you. You know, if you don't like the city and you have trouble dealing with a lot of hustle and bustle, he sends you to the city monastery. That's where your practice is. He was really a rascal, and he'd find out just what you didn't like and make you do it. 
if you were if you were bored or restless, then he'd put you in some position where you'd have more boredom to deal with or more restlessness and make you feel it and say, you feel it until you die. Because really that's the spirit of practice. That which which resists is the sense of I or ego or self. And you just have to work with that until it dies. That's overcoming. Sleep. He'd say, sit up straight. Open your eyes if you're sleepy. Walk a lot. I was sleepy for a while, so sleepy in my practice. Okay, walk backwards. I'd walk backwards. I'd still be sleepy. All right, walk backwards in the forest. No, you really have to wake up. Trees and vines and things. Fine, that kept me awake, walking backwards in the forest. But then I'd sit down and I'd get sleepy again. He said, all right, we have a cure for people like you. There's a well near your cottage. You go and sit right on the edge of the well. So I'd sit down on the edge of the well, close my eyes, begin to meditate, get a little sleepy, and then you start to nod. And look down, and there's like 50 feet of space below me, and the rush of adrenaline from the fear (laughs) keep you right awake. Overcome it. Overcome fear. Go into it. Go in the forest. Overcome sleepiness. Work with it. Stand up. Walk backwards. Doubt. If you have doubt, he said, fine, just you continue doubting. He said, there are two kinds of suffering in this world. There's the suffering which leads to more suffering, which is what most people are involved in. They do whatever they do in cycles, and then they try and get more in the same, and it just increases itself. And the suffering which leads to the end of suffering, which is that willingness to stop and experience everything, all the sides of the mind, and learn how to be open to that without being, without being moved, without being caught up by it. And that's what leads to freedom. Anger. If you're angry or restless, great, be angry. Go back to your cottage and just spend the day being angry and look at it and feel it, experience it. Just keep sitting, he would say. He would talk about um, starving the tiger of anger to death in a cage of mindfulness. He said, you don't have to take it out and butcher it or kill it. You just make mindfulness around whatever it is and then let it exhaust itself. Same for lust. He said when people had really compulsive lust, he'd make them look at it. I remember this Westerner who's abbot of one of his monasteries who told him he had a lot of fantasies and lust and things coming up. And he had every afternoon the villagers would come for Dharma talks and so forth. And he said, well, did you tell the villagers about yourself? Hmm? Tell all the old ladies, go tell them. And he really made him get up there and confess what was in his mind, really made him face it, made him look at it. Another monk who was overwhelmed by just compulsive thoughts of sexual desire and lust, he made go sit in the charnel grounds with the corpses for a while and really look at the body and what happens to it. So ways of overcoming the things that we get caught in. But still, he did it often with a lot of balance, natural. He wouldn't allow long fasts. He wouldn't allow long solitary practice unless he thought you were really ready for it. He said, you have to know the strength of your vehicle, of your ox cart. You can't load it up with too much or it'll break down. He made space for each person to grow at their appropriate pace. So working with things first by overcoming, by really willing to face them and feel them, work with sleepiness and fear, go into it. You can overcome it. And the second way was by letting go which is the essence of the middle path, the teachings of the Buddha coming to balance. Letting go in terms of form. In that monastery, every time you left, you gave up your cottage, even if you were a senior monk, and you came back and you got assigned a cottage more or less at random, and you couldn't hold on to it. All kinds of forms. I remember a rich man coming to him one day saying that, he was a very wealthy businessman. He'd retired and he had a lot of money and he was happily retired. He's going to start giving his money to charity. And he's saying kind of proudly, and I don't know whether to give it to the hospital or to the orphans or maybe to your monastery and help, you know, build things for monks and nuns. And Ajahn Chah looked at him and he said, I know what you should do with it. And the man said, what? He said, throw it off the bridge over the river on the way to the monastery. And the man's jaw dropped open. And it was just the right thing 
because it was to really let go. If him giving it somewhere else, it was see how great I am, what I've done with my money. And in terms of form, it was look at what you're attached to and learn how to let go of it. In terms of other things that arise, doubts would arise in the mind. He'd say, someone asked, what can I do about my doubts? Some days I'm plagued with doubts about the practice or my progress or the teacher. He said, doubting is natural. Everyone starts out with doubts. You can learn a lot from them. What's important is that you don't identify with your doubts. That is, don't get caught up in them. This will spin your mind in endless circles. Instead, watch the whole process of doubting, of wondering. See who it is that doubts. See how doubts come and go. Then you'll no longer be victimized by your doubts. You'll step outside of them and your mind will become quiet. You'll see how all things come and go. Just let go of what you're attached to. Let go of your doubts. Let them be there and simply watch. This is how to put an end to the trouble of doubting. Learning to watch the mind and not get caught in all of its lures and its traps and its intricacies. The same with the intellect. I remember him, he was teaching in England at one time and there was this very staid and uh, upper-class English lady who had been part of one of the British Buddhist societies for many years. And she came to visit Ajahn Chah, teaching this was a couple of years ago. Um, There are many old Buddhist organizations in England. And she asked him all these complicated questions about the Abhidharma and arcane Buddhist psychology. And Ajahn Chah asked her if she had ever done much meditation practice. And she said, no, she hadn't had time. She'd been so busy studying the Dharma. And he said, Madam, you are like a woman who keeps chickens in her yard and and goes around picking up the chicken shit instead of the eggs. He's let go of stuff. Really put it down. Look what you're doing. Letting go of doubts, letting go of the intellect and our obsession with it. Letting go of desires. He said, make your mindfulness like a parent. He said, with a child, your mind is the child and mindfulness is the parent. You have a little kid, your little son or daughter coming along. Daddy, can we have an elephant? Sure, kid. Daddy, I want an ice cream cone. Okay, kid. Daddy, can we buy a new car? All right, kid. You just watch and the kid says all this stuff. You don't have to act on it all and just say, yeah, that's fine. And you watch the child of your mind come up with all these desires and you just let them arise and let them go. The same with with the... With concentration, he used to say one of the great difficulties in people, they'd start to get quiet in their practice and then they'd think, oh boy, am I going to get enlightened now? Or this must be right near the edge of one of those great experiences. And the minute they'd start to think that, of course, it would all disappear and slide away. He said, just let go of it. Let go of things and let them be just as as they are for you. It's not trying to make something, but rather to be with each experience as it happens. Judgment arises, fine. Let judgment be there. If you have a lot of judgment, count them. 231, 232, 233. Make it the object. There's nothing wrong with that. Judgment is as good as watching in and out breath or rising, falling, or the sound. It's not to change it, but to see how things arise and how they pass away. To experience and feel things fully and yet not be caught with them. Anger, fear, doubt, sleepiness, let them come, let them go, and just watch, be here. And it doesn't mean withdrawal, it doesn't mean mean suppression. Really open to them. And then you can learn, that's how you learn to be free. It says, sitting for hours on end is not necessary. What some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. Wisdom, he said, comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as you awaken in the morning, and it should continue until you fall asleep. What's important is only that you keep watchful, whether you're working or sitting or going to the bathroom. Each person has their own natural pace. 
Some of you will die at age 50, some at age 65, and some at age 90. So too, your practice will be different. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You'll see clearly the nature of all things in the world, see many wonderful things and strange things come and go. But you will be still, and this is the happiness of the Buddha. So there's surrender first, really working with everything that comes, overcoming things that are difficult, going into our fears, going into working with sleepingness, not being afraid of these things. And then learning how to watch the mind with balance, how all these things come and go. And this leads to the fourth level of his teaching, which is gaining balance or perspective. The simplicity of the middle path. He would never teach levels of enlightenment. He didn't like it. He doesn't like the system of different stages of enlightenment and different levels of the progress of insight. Because he said, when you teach that, people get attached to it. They want to get there. They have a gaining ideal. I remember coming back to him after doing much intensive practice in another monastery, describing these different experiences to him, all kinds of things that happened. And I was finished. And he looked at me and he said, do you still have any fear? I said, yeah. Do you still have any greed and desires? Mm Mm-hmm. Anger still come? Yep. Still comes. He said, fine, continue. And that was all he said after this whole long, all these experiences and wonderful things and insights and stuff that I'd had. You still have stuff to do? Yep, go on, carry on, that's all. Not letting people fix themselves in some place in practice. He looked at it, he, he was really simple. He said, for me, no one comes and no one goes. No, and he asked me at one point, did I learn anything in my travels? What did I learn that wasn't there? And I thought about it. I said, there really wasn't anything that, in fact, I could have learned it anywhere. I could have as well stayed. And he said, I knew that before you left, but um, it would have done no good to tell you. You had to go on that journey to discover it. But from my point of view, no one comes and no one goes. Learning the middle path, a place of balance, of sensibility, how to use form, how to use practice, but not to be stuck in it. One last story before I end. Remember the Western monastery, which he set up in a nearby forest about six miles away from his main monastery, and he has now 50 different branches. He's a very famous teacher with many disciples. The Westerners there at Christmas time decided that they would have a big Christmas celebration. And the villagers who built and supported the monastery got upset, and they came to Ajahn Chah and they complained. They said, here we have a Buddhist monastery which we're supporting, and they're doing this big Christmas thing, and it doesn't seem right to us. And Ajahn Chah said, well, as I understand it, Christmas is a holiday which celebrates kindness and joy and generosity, giving to other people, love. He said, and as far as I'm concerned, that is very much the spirit of the teaching of Buddhism. But if you insist, we won't celebrate Christmas anymore. We will celebrate Chris Budimus. (laughs) And the villagers were quite content and they went back. Not to be stuck in any particular form, to be flexible, to use it, The point is to learn how to let go and to be free. How to be happy, he said. And one of his traditional things, we were sitting with him and he he held up a glass and he said, the way to be happy is to imagine that this glass is already broken. He said, if you look at it as already broken, then you use it and you drink from it and you take care of it and eventually it breaks and you're not upset. And if you see that everything you have, your body, your family, Everything in the world will eventually be lost to you. If you see that now, if you can die to that now, then you can appreciate and be with it and enjoy it very fully. And when it disappears or you do, no problem. 
you'll really be happy. You would know the level of emptiness and also you'd be able to use it in a worldly way. And his teaching is wonderful because it combines the level of ultimate dharma, of seeing that it's all empty, that it's a dance, that our life is nothing uh, in comparison to the eons and and galaxies and billions of stars and billions of years of this planet changing. We're just here for a little while, a short dance. And at the same time, very practical, how to take care and to live with impeccability, to sweep the paths with care and delight and fullness, to be honest with oneself and with another person. He wouldn't let people get caught in any level. If you wanted to sit too much, he'd stop you. If you, wa- if you were caught in, I remember a conversation about anatta, about non-self, and he said, non-self, anatta is not true, which is an amazing thing for a Buddhist teacher to say. It's not correct. He said, self is one side and non-self is the other side. And what's true is neither of those. Because any of those is a position. The business of Buddhism is to make people happy and free, developing and seeing their resources and opening to what's true. So from surrender and seeing clearly and learning how to deal with the mind in a balanced way, you yourself can become a Buddha. When we left him, he said, you know, people come to me in Thailand and they ask for, they ask for uh, little Buddhas or water sprinkling or some kind of blessing ceremony and they insult themselves. And you come and you ask me questions. You want somebody to teach you the Dharma. And you insult yourself too, as if that would help you in some way. Because the Dharma and the Buddha and the truth are already in your heart. If only you can turn in and use that which is there and understand it and see it and work with it, then everything will become simple. So he said in closing, he wishes that all of us continue our practice with the wisdom that's in our hearts already, that we use that and it becomes the cause for our growth and the deepening of greater love, greater understanding. Understand you can deepen your practice in a lot of ways. Don't be lazy. If you find yourself lazy, then work to strengthen those qualities which overcome it. Don't be fearful. Don't be timid. If you find yourself timid in practice, then work with your mind so that you can overcome that. But in all cases, use your natural wisdom. With proper effort and with time, it will unfold by itself. He concluded by saying that what he's taught is what he hopes will be helpful to us in practice. And if you really do it, if anyone really does it, they can come to the end of all doubts. They can be liberated. You can come to where you have no more questions, to that place of silence the place in which there is oneness with the world, with the Buddha, with the Dharma, with all things. And only you can do that. So do it already. That's all. Any questions, please? Yeah, he had a number of comments. He said that it was a beautiful and suitable place for practice. And he loved the forest around here. He he first came and he said, you know, I must have been a tiger in one of my last lives because as soon as we got out of the city and I could see all these beautiful forests in New England, I just wanted you to stop the car and I wanted to run away into the forest. (laughs) He thought it was wonderful, both the area and the physical facility. And he said the teachers were pretty good. (laughs) Um, It was interesting, though. He was here for a few days and... Uh, he was working with the staff and the people in the retreat and people really loved him because he is very funny and personable and charming. And he said, would you like me to stay for a long time and help teach here? And everyone said, oh yes, oh yes. And he said, you know what? If I stayed very long, you'd be bored. He said, you like me now because I'm new and I'm something new for you. But if I stayed for a long time, then you'd get tired of me because you get tired of everything. And that sort of... It's true. And it sort of points to that 
in another way to an answer to your question, Stuart. Because it's not so much the place, even if you find the most wonderful ideal setting, eventually you'll find difficulty in it. Because the difficulty will be the things that are that are our habits that create difficulty in our minds. Um, and this is certainly as good as anywhere to practice, but even so, as most of you know, there's plenty of difficulties, not so much in the place, but in what comes up in one's practice. 